in Wild Country. Rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvest Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You get your host here, Justin Townsend, uh, alongside my compadre, Adam. Uh, <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, excited to chat today a bit. Uh, we're going to continue on with our Cooking by Cut segment. And uh, today we're going to be discussing the ribs and the brisket. Uh, they are very connected pieces literally and uh metaphorically so uh we'll we'll talk about those today in our next uh cooking by cut episode we will uh stay within the sort of the center portion of the animal and uh we'll talk about the skirt and flank steaks so that'll be an exciting episode um first off i guess we'll go through a bit of current events kind of what's going on in our world uh we're in Sort of the the tail end of hunting season here is is we're in January. Also, it's our first episode, first recorded episode of the new year. We haven't released any yet, so uh, we're getting back on track. Uh, we got a new uh, podcast producer coming in to help us out as well. Uh, coming here very soon. Uh, his name's Cody, uh, so we'll we'll bring him in and introduce him at some point and uh, see where it all goes. And um, other than that, let's see, uh, goose hunting. So it's been pretty frigid here in Colorado over the last week. Uh, we dipped downs into the very, very low negatives. Um, and I decided it was a great idea to take my daughter out goose hunting. So we went out to uh, some of this youth-only blinds, which are about 20 minutes from my house. And it was negative 11 there Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in uh, regular celsius the rest of the world um but it was cold and i took my daughter who's 11 
and she braved the cold uh, one morning sit and one afternoon sit. And uh, we saw tons of geese everywhere. We couldn't really get them to fly into our spread, though, so that was a little frustrating. Uh, and then, of course, the cold. The first day our heater ran out, and uh, we were just kind of sitting there. It wasn't too bad for me, and then it started getting cold a little later, but uh, Zoe felt as though she wasn't adequately prepared with gloves and all that other stuff, so she was pretty uh, frigid. And then we had to pack up all the decoys from the field which took about 30 minutes and you're like really you're out of the blind and exposed to the elements and so she was not feeling that but uh we we moved through we'll probably go back out i think the blinds are open until uh i think the 7th of february or something like that is when we can still hunt them so we'll correspond up into our goose camp which actually this is also the first episode i've talked about our goose camp so we uh canceled our waterfowl camp that we had in Oklahoma, which was January. It actually would have been this week, right, Adam? Yeah, I I believe so. Yeah, so it would have been this week. So we canceled that and uh, decided instead that we are going to have a snow goose camp uh, in February. So it is February 15th through the 18th in Mound City, Missouri, which uh, if you've ever seen pictures of, like, the hundreds of snow geese flying – that's uh, those photographs are taken from like a preserve, which is in Mountain City. Uh, so it's like the epicenter for kind of the snow goose migration in that area, which is pretty cool. So uh, we're partnering uh, with local lodge there, and we'll be out in the goose pits hunting those. The great thing about snow geese is that there are uh, no daily limits. There's no bag limits. There's none of that. It's like free for all. You don't have to have a plug in your shotgun. Uh, you can just go crazy. You can use electronic calls. Like it's pretty wild. The cost of the license is only forty-five bucks, which is great. Um, and you just go there and you just blast it. But uh, we're gonna approach it very similar to how we have our wild pig camp, where we're gonna run you through shooting, through the hunting, through the butchering, and the cooking. So uh, right now it's just gonna be Adam and I. We've got a total of eight people signed up. We have one more seat left. Uh, So if you're hearing this and you're interested, you should come and join this really awesome uh, event. And um, we are going to uh, do a lot more, I think, food-focused stuff. Adam and I are a little elevated cuisine uh, with the snow goose uh, to try and and, uh, make it a little more – not fun. It's fun always, but I don't know. Make it exciting. Do something different. So – we're going to do that. we got some skeet shooting lined out. And then, of course, tons of birds to clean, hopefully. Uh, this big, like, Arctic exposure of coldness uh, will hopefully push some snow geese down, uh, which will be good. So we'll, we'll stay tuned for that. But uh, we'll probably also do a podcast while we're there. I'm planning on it. So that'll be fun to talk about uh, goose hunting whilst goose hunting, maybe. But uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And let's see, other than that, uh, pretty much just like trying to cook. Adam and I are working on a project together, uh, cranking out a ton of recipes and doing some fun stuff. We'll, we'll tell you all about it soon, but until then, it's super secret squirrel stuff. And then uh, I'll turn it over to Adam. Adam, what you got, buddy? <clears throat> Not a whole lot going on uh, since December, just kind of recovering from Christmas and, and New Year's and everything. Uh, but I am going rabbit hunting this weekend, um, which will be the, probably the last hunt we can do here in Ontario uh, before the whole everything kind of shuts down. Uh, and oddly enough, I've never been rabbit hunting. 
Uh, I got into hunting late in life, and I figured that rabbit hunting would be one of the first things I did for some reason. I don't know if that's because of Bugs Bunny or or some <laughs> something in my brain told me that, that was a, the first thing to kind of start out with was rabbit hunting, and I've never had the chance to actually do it. And uh, the places I do see a lot of rabbits are not places I should be blasting away with the shotgun, I don't think. So um, I finally got the chance to do that this weekend with a buddy on his parents' farm. So I'm really looking forward to that, uh, trying something new. So I think we'll be probably hunting on snowshoes because we got a couple feet of snow um, recently. So uh, yeah, it's been pretty deep. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And then other than it's that... Like a- Oh, it's like a bucket list for me, uh, snow, hunting snowshoes on snowshoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm sure we get a few snowshoes down here, but we might be more likely hunting cottontail and maybe European hare, but we'll have to see. I uh, don't nice. know too much about it, but my buddy is much well, better informed. Um, he also recently got his trapper's license and will be cooking up some muskrat. Uh, which I oh, haven't, nice. haven't tried cooking it before. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about this weekend. Um, other than that, I've just been, like I said, preparing for Snow Goose Camp and, and cranking recipes and, and uh, cooking up a storm. But I haven't been um, doing any fishing or, or hunting really this, this month yet. Well, uh, definitely wish you luck as you go on your, your first rabbit hunt. Um, I think about... I I think rabbits was one of those things we hunted pretty like frequently when we were kids uh, growing up. And it was often I always loved it whenever it snowed because then you could track the rabbits. And so, granted, in Oklahoma we didn't get a ton of snow, but whenever it did, because then you could go out and you could track them and follow them. And usually we'd be much more successful otherwise. Um, but we also had this thing too. They said growing up, like don't eat rabbits before the first freeze. So. Mm-hmm you typically wouldn't hunt them very often until just during the winter. So I don't know. Do you guys have that? Is it a kind of a uh-huh. saying where you're at? I haven't heard as much, but um, is that because of worms and the disease? That was this, that was the speculation was, okay. was parasites, but it's like when I lived in California, we would hunt uh, rabbits year round. Like there's no season on them. There's no bag limit. You just, you can go crazy or maybe there is, it's like five or six a day, which is, right. which is a lot. Um, but we never had any problems. Like I never found any, you know, worms, never found any uh, parasites or anything like that in the ones that we hunted. So that was pretty cool to see the contrast just between the two. But um, uh, curious to hear back after your hunt. Let me know how mm-hmm. it goes. Um, but let's uh, let's go ahead and dive into sort of uh, the meat of the show here. Um, and I mentioned earlier we we're going to talk about the ribs and the brisket. So we'll start off with the ribs. And, you know, I think the ribs are one of those cuts, like, if you were to ask somebody to point to a cut of meat and identify what it was, I would guess that 95% of the people would identify uh, the rib cut. Um, So we'll break it down just like we do for all these cuts. Uh, And so really, the ribs are the curved bones that form uh, the lateral thoracic walls of the animal so that's like your rib cage area so those ribs are the outside pieces uh they are attached at the top uh, to the spine and then down at the bottom of the rib depending on where they're placed on the animal they may either be connected or they may be free floating 
some of those ribs are going to be connected to the sternum uh, by meat and cartilage. And then I mentioned others are free-floating, so those would be the ones back. Uh, and those would be the ones that you're most interacting with if you're, like, trying to open up the gut cavity without sort of, like, splitting the sternum. Um I think is where people are probably interacting with them the most. Um, the portion that we are most concerned about as people who enjoy tasty meat uh, is the portion between the ribs. And so this portion is called the intercostal space. So that'll be the region between each bone. And that is where the intercostal muscle lies. That's the meat. So um, that's what we want to eat. And uh, depending on where it's situated, uh, either the top of the ribs or the bottom of the ribs will determine what that those cuts are called, but it'll also determine some uh, characteristics you'll get from that meat. And I'll go into that in just a second. I thought it was interesting that when we think about game animals and even um, – even domestic animals that cows, deer, elk, and bear all have 13 ribs per side, whereas pigs and pronghorn antelope have 15 per side. So, just a little little difference. Interesting, fun fact. It'd be a good trivia question, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, so I thought that was cool, but. You will commonly see cuts of uh, beef. Like when they're referring to quarters, they're counting the specific ribs and then they're cutting the uh, whole hanging carcass in half to then split it uh, down that based on a number of ribs. When we're in the wild game world, while you can cut animals that way, certainly, uh, you're not going to see it cut as much. Most of the time, you're just going to see the quarters removed off and then the rib portion uh, itself removed off. Um, they're both located on each side of the spine. It's no surprise if you've seen an animal before. It's pretty uh, uniform on each side. And then if you want to remove those, really there's there's two methods uh, that you can do it. And um, I'm a big fan of batoning, and so that's where you're taking the meat cleaver and you're placing it uh, with the basically kind of parallel to the spine I guess it would be parallel. Yep. No, per- <clears throat> perpendicular. Okay. Parallel to the edge. Yeah, parallel yep. to the edge of the spine with it being perpendicular to the rib. And you're taking your meat cleaver and you're tapping the back of it with a rubber mallet or a wooden mallet or whatever, usually rubber. And it's going to kind of travel along the edge of the spine and split the ribs uh, off of the spine. You can also do that uh, with a saw. You'll see a lot of people do it with like sawzaws or a hand meat saw. Um, I don't like it as much because you end up with more bone particles than when you baton. And I just, I actually find that batoning is less effort than sawing, unless you're using a sawzall. I don't know. The the size of the animal sometimes makes a difference. So Mm -hmm. doing things like uh, like deer or wild pigs, or if I'm doing domestic lamb. More pigs, I'll, I'll stick to batoning. But once you start getting to like bison or moose or beef or stuff like that, then it's a lot of it takes a lot of muscle to tap that uh, cleaver through. So then working with the saw might be a better option. Luckily, um, I have a lot of muscle, so yeah, okay. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> 
no, that's fair. Um, yeah, I didn't even cross my mind too. I'm sure like elk would be a little bit of more challenge. You're getting something bigger, bigger bodied as well. So, uh, and then once you have that section of rib off, um, I typically, when I work, I try to do one side of an animal and then flip it over and do the other side of the animal. Uh, meaning like the quarters, removing the quarters, removing everything, but you could certainly like remove one rib section, flip it over, remove the other and have two side by side, but I'll often finish one before I move to the next. And then I will, uh, take those, the whole rib cage on one side and I will split it down the middle lengthways. So you end up with two long portions and, uh, that's what you really commonly see. Um, when you're shopping in the grocery store and you see beef or pork cuts, you've got your, your baby back ribs are the top portion of the ribs, which are closest to the spine. Those are usually meatier. And then you've got your spare ribs, which are your portion at the bottom, which are typically less meat, but more flavor. And then you've got your rib tips, which are, is that section of meat between the uh, lower end of the spare rib and the sternum. So that's uh, that's that portion. So those are the three primary portions of the ribs. Um, in wild game, depending on the size of your animal, you may not get uh, rib tips uh, for sure because there's not a lot of fat or muscle kind of present there. It may be super thin. Um, and you may often just want to keep those sort of that area attached to the sternum, uh, as part of your, your whole rib section. So you can really cook and utilize that meat. Um, once I split them in half, I typically will break them into usable sections. So usually like four or five ribs per section. Uh, I feel like that's an adequate serving. Like if you're going to serve someone is to have that, um, We'll talk a little bit about the meat thickness real quick, but so when we're going to talk about brisket here in a minute, part of that brisket is going to be the meat on the outside of the ribs. So if you take that off, you're going to end up with a much thinner rib, which I think is okay. But if you leave that portion of the brisket on, you're going to end up with, um, you know, more meat. It just really comes down to personal preference of what you want to do. So that's just a little food for thought. <laughs> um... You're welcome. The jokes are free. <laughs> you know that um, you said that you like to break them up into about five ribs or so. Um, in a grocery store or restaurant setting, five or more ribs constitutes a rack. So if you're getting a rack of ribs, if you get less than, than five bones on it, it's not a true rack of ribs, apparently. Another little factoid I learned today in, our, in hmm. researching this. Nice. That's good to know, too, because then if you get a half rack, then you'd be getting like two or three two or three ribs which would be kind of disappointing yeah (laughs) so uh, that actually translates well over into the culinary history bit a bit so uh most people i think if you talk about like cooking ribs uh at least most people in the states are gonna think about like pit roasting or slow roasting ribs in like american barbecue style right um but well, and two, like historically, you think about like plantations, you think about the deep south, you think about that sort of connection to pork uh, that that folks have there. But ironically enough, that's not where you find the origins of the popularity of cooking ribs. Uh, sure, people have 
for a long time consumed and eaten ribs, but I will say that uh, in the way that we see it today is relatively new, not as new as some of the cuts that we've talked about that are like from, oh, this cut was invented in the 1990s. But uh, I would say the early 1900s, you had the creation of the ribs as a, a useful and popular cut due largely to industrial butchering practices. And uh, what happened, so what happened was, is that as uh, the, the animals were getting broken down and going into barrels to store, they couldn't store the full carcasses in the barrel. So they would break the ribs off, and the ribs would then easily fit in barrels for storage. Are we getting right that? Am I getting that right, Adam? Am I missing anything? Yeah, I think they could pack the majority of the pig into the barrel, but the ribs due to their size, wouldn't fit properly into the barrel, so they were left out from shipping. That's yeah, how I read it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, which, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're trying to fit uh, a whole section of a pig in there and you've got this last thing, probably the last cut you're going to put in is like, oh, we don't really use this. All these other cuts are much popular, so let's get them to the, the markets and then we'll have this left over. Well, and then in turn, it's like, well, then they started selling them and using them, and, and then it became a staple uh, in cuisine. So uh, I, th- I think that that's a cool little evolutionary tale. But um, it's, it's much like uh, like chicken wings or there's some other cuts too that were very unpopular in the past and were basically like a throwaway item. So they didn't fit in these barrels. Uh, the barrels got shipped. They were left over these ribs. They basically gave them away for next to nothing. Poor communities would then... Um, rely on those cuts uh, for their meat because that was the only meat they could afford compared to the rest of the stuff. And then they became eventually became part of their cultural identity. And then that they somehow became popular once more, just like ribs and chicken wings have. And now they're expensive as hell again. <laughs> so it kind, yeah. of, it kind of full circle from it. Um. Oh, and they're so tasty too. I, I'm a big rib fan. Um, well, ribs and wings. Now that we mention it, <laughs> um, but I too like my mind definitely goes towards like American style barbecue uh, of like going and getting ribs and and slow cooking them over the smoker, and then slathering them with barbecue and just devouring them as quickly as I can. And like I mentioned earlier, I think that's probably where a lot of folks' heads are at. Uh, the big difference with wild game, though is that you lack, uh, there's no fat, or as Adam mentions as well, there's bad fat. And so what, what do you mean when you say bad fat? So that's kind of a general term, but but it's a fat that most people don't want. So if you're thinking of like nice, juicy, succulent pork ribs, and the, you know that fat kind of just melts into the, into the meat and it keeps everything super moist, and when you when you take a bite out of it, it just kind of melts in your mouth. You generally don't get that with fat from cervids, which we've talked about before. Uh, and that's due to like a high concentrated concentration of saturated fat and steric acid, which is something that basically coats your mouth. And most people who've eaten a lot of venison have had that um, sensation before where you eat a fatty piece of venison, your mouth gets coated with like a chalky kind of sensation. Um, funny enough... I think- Oh, go ahead. 
No, no, no. Go ahead. Funny enough, the the steric acid in the saturated fat that's causing that uh, that fatty acid is um, can be found in beef and can be found in lamb and goat. And you'll notice that a little more in beef and lamb and goat than you would in pork. Um, but the other place it's found is in chocolate, which gives us that beautiful, luscious mouthfeel of chocolate that coats your mouth. Except venison fat's not going to leave you as happy as chocolate does. So, um, <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I say bad fat, but I I do kind of like a little bit of it. And if you treat it properly, um, which we'll get into later, I think it can be. Uh, you can have a little bit on, and 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 you can enjoy it. But most people are more likely to want to get rid of it altogether. Uh, it's not going to be the same as pork. One, two, we, we talk about, um, yeah, pork, like pork lard. So, like, rendered fat from pork is lard. And then you've got, like, uh, from cervids and stuff, even cervids and then uh, cattle, lamb, all that would be uh, tallow. So, it wouldn't you wouldn't have the same expectation uh, is a lard from a, a tallow. It's still useful in the culinary world. Just understand the differences. Um. So, yeah, so you'll get that present there of either lack of fat or the fat that you may not want to consume. Um, so that's going to tell you you're not going to want to slow smoke it a ton because you're going to dry it out. And the point of slow smoking it is to get it to take a very tough cut because it's on the outside of the animal. It's doing a lot of work. It's holding up. It's moving. It's getting poked and prodded. And, uh... It's, it's there to protect really the inside uh, vital organs of the animal. And so it's going to be kind of tough and chewy. And in order to break it down, you're going to need to, as we see, like with domestic animals, slow smoke it, which slowly cooks it. Or I think in the case of wild game, you're going to want to braise it uh, or slow cook it and, and maintain some kind of moisture content. And we'll talk a little bit about that technique, uh, in our recipes and we've got a few favorites, uh, of preparation methods, but it's real easy to, uh, braise sous vide, uh, and then finish, you know, with a sear or a grill, uh, to get sort of that, like, uh, characteristic char that you think of when, when you think about, uh, kind of barbecued ribs. Um, they miss anything, Adam? I don't think so. Um, another thing to contend with with wild game is the age of the animal, um, which can sometimes be much older than uh, an animal you're getting from the grocery store, uh, sometimes by years. So you're going to have to cook it longer in order to uh, tenderize it. Um, and if there's less fat and you're cooking it longer, there's even more opportunity for it to dry out on you. So cooking, like you said, braising with a liquid or with moisture is extremely important. Um, it doesn't have the fail-safes and buffers that a young fatty animal from the grocery store has. You, you could probably even, like, uh, if you were really set on some sort of, like, grilling or smoking, if you, like, basted regularly and kept it closed so you could seal in moisture, um you could probably get away with that, but you're definitely going to see a bit of drying out from like very prolonged dry heat cooking. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. 
If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com But yeah, let's move over to talk a little bit about the brisket. Um, so we've touched on the ribs. Now let's move to the other section here. So um with the brisket really what we're referring to is is going to be uh a combination of two areas on the animal so in uh cattle it's much larger it's much thicker there's a lot of fat present and in game there's not um it's generally a pretty thin uh very uh i wouldn't say stringy but uh grainy piece of meat um and really two portions so um you've got your front brisket uh or the breast uh and then which is also called the point um so that would be the the portion uh underneath the neck um and atop the uh the breast bone that would also be known as like your pectorals of the animal and then you've got your uh portion that runs underneath the shoulder blade and then atop the rib cage and that is uh what i call like the belly the rib flap i think another the more uh common or more professional uh cut is called uh the flat and that would be the flat portion of meat there um it's uh full of connective tissue there's a lot of silver skin on both sides it's very thin so in order to remove that silver skin you would have to do a lot of trimming i don't know adam you want to go into into this a bit yeah the um it it is likely to have some fat and potential fat pockets that you might want to remove especially out of cervids um if we're talking about um wild hogs you can leave the fat, um, elk, deer, moose kind of thing. You want to remove most of it. Um, you know, trim the silver skin as much as possible. Um, the grain of the meat is a lot like flank steak. If you've seen flank, you'll notice there's long, um, visible grains with the meat, um, compared to kind of a shorter one. Um, that often leads to, to toughness. Um, you want to, um, you can kind of like remove it whole by peeling away with a knife underneath, uh, getting your knife underneath and following the ribs, like the rib bones, get it, peel it back and roll it up. And you can take off pretty much the whole thing from under the shoulders all the way around the, the protrusion of the chest or the breast and to the other side. Or you could cut it off in pieces, in separate pieces, depending on what you're doing with the animal. Um, it's going to be a fair bit chewier than other cuts. It's going to be quite thin, and it's going to cook up very differently compared to your beef brisket. It's going to lack that fat cut that protects it during cooking. Um, and it's going to lack the thickness and the intramuscular fat that um, keeps it moist while cooking. Um, I'm sure everyone's had a dry brisket before too. So even a beef brisket can be prone to drying out and a, um, 
uh, a wild game brisket is even more so. So it's a it's a tricky cut of meat, but it is a rewarding one if you treat it properly. I would say. Hmm. I think. Uh... I think probably like one of the ways that I've been experimenting with it recently is like the, the laden, like the rolled rolling it, uh, and then kind of braising it in a liquid very slow to where it's your, you don't have to worry about trimming the silver skin as much, uh, because you're cooking it to a point where the silver skin is going to, uh, that fascia is going to turn to collagen and you're going to get just that inside your liquid versus inside the meat and which will allow it to be super tender as though all those connective tissues break down. So, um, it's kind of a good way, good way to do it. Um, we want to talk, let's see a little bit about, um, you want to talk about the old Norse word? Do you have it handy? Oh yeah, so there was um, the the word brisket, which it's a little different than the rest of the animal. And I've always kind of thought that the the cut didn't sound the same as the rest of the cuts on an animal. Uh, but it comes from an old Germanic word uh, that means cartilage, and that goes to show how much um, connected tissue is found in in this cut. Um, and it comes off that that breastbone. Uh, we're going to pull a lot of like your short ribs from from beef or or um, breast of lamb, um, and there's a lot of and even those like um, kind of spare ribs like you mentioned before. Uh, you get a lot of like that cartilage in that section of the animal, um, so that must be where that comes from. Uh, so this was a cut that's been known for a long time apparently, and it's been cooked, and people knew its properties for a long time as well. And then, as we see it in more in more modern cuisine, I think I saw. Uh, oh gosh, I forget. I lost the article. I had it up, but it was a uh, um, smoked brisket or roast briskets. Very uh, its origins we see in Jewish cuisine, uh, cooked during some of the holidays, uh, which I thought was super cool because also like the ribs, uh, a lot of folks think. Texas barbecue when you think about uh, briskets. And so uh, in the latter part of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s, probably the same point in which the the ribs were growing in popularity, uh, the briskets in, in the, the Texas rancher's uh, kitchen was growing in popularity. So um, it then became sort of like a staple amongst uh, Texas cuisine. Um I definitely love a good brisket. Um, I think that uh, wild game briskets treated definitely a little differently. So, um, and then Adam, you mentioned a little bit about Asian cuisine. You want to talk some about that? Sure. It's a uh, brisket. You just see it pop up in certain cuisines. It's not something that's kind of found everywhere I've found. Um, but one place you do see it is in a lot of Asian soups. Uh, which is interesting. So if anyone's ever had uh, Vietnamese pho, um, the nice, tender, fatty cut in there is brisket. Um, Hong Kong-style beef noodle soup has brisket, some of the Chinese, other Chinese soups. Uh, and that's a really cool place to find it because you find they've been like slowly simmered until they're super tender. And the like we've said over and over in this pod, this uh, series, podcast series, is that 
cuts with a lot of connective tissue have a lot of collagen, which turns into gelatin, which turns into mouthfeel and lip-smacking feeling and lots of flavor. So if you can imagine um, simmering a brisket, your your broth is going to be extra flavorful, and you really do find that in Asian soups. They're like super um, hearty and full of umami and really flavorful, and uh, yeah, can't get enough of them. <laughs> So very tasty. But uh, as, we, as we talk about cooking, um, we've talked sort of about the braise. We've talked about the smoke. We've talked about the stuff and roll. Um, it can definitely be shredded, right? So when you think about uh, dishes um, where you're cooking, cooking it still, you're, you're braising it essentially into a form where you can just sort of like pull it apart in these long shreds. Uh, and that's great for like tacos or, uh, you know, served over rice or with, uh, some sort of starch and a delicious sauce. Like that's pretty much, uh, how you could do it. I mean, I would even see like, if you want to shred it and have barbecue sandwiches would be super, really taste, super, really tasty. Jeez. It would be very tasty. Um, and then Adam, you mentioned a trim, trim sear and medium to medium rare what uh walk me through that it's like i mentioned the the grains are similar to a flank steak which is often a thinner cut and you can kind of treat this like the brisket uh tip or point the same way so the what you're pulling off of the actual um breastbone more so than the meat pulled from under the shoulders on the ribs um you can trim it well if you're able to and because it's so thin it takes well to marinades uh marinades often don't do much for meat because they only penetrate like a millimeter or two in or whatever that is for uh an eighth to a quarter of an inch yeah very little <laughs> into into the meat but if you have a very thin cut uh think if you're getting an eighth of an inch from both sides on a thinner cut you're actually penetrating quite deep into the meat uh, so an overnight marinade and then a really quick sear, a really hot, fast sear. So you're going to be eating it like rare to medium rare, uh, with a nice crispy crust on the outside, much like a skirt steak or a flank steak. And, uh, that's an interesting way of eating it too. It's going to be a little chewier, but it's going to be flavorful and, and, and something a little different. So that's worth trying too. You could do, uh, some classic preparations using something like that it would be like fajitas, uh, you want it like super hot and fast. You want to sear it. You want a little char on there. You want to marinate it for a while, and then you can chop it up and throw it into uh, tacos or fajitas or whatever. So that's like, like an interesting, a, unique way to use it. Like carne asada. Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, man, that sounds good. Um, no, I think that's all really great. I was thinking too. Uh, sort of a tip for that is is you want to make sure you're like slicing across the grain too, because then you're shortening those strands of meat, so it makes it easier to chew. Because the longer the strand, the more chewy it is. So if you're cutting across the grain, you're going to shorten that, and it'll make it more pleasant to consume. I said it in a in one of the other ones, but I'll say it again just to hammer it in. But uh, picture have like a see a string like a butcher's twine. And taking like a foot long piece and trying to chew on it, or a little uh, half inch piece, and which one's going to be easier to chew and swallow? <laughs> what? Uh, and you can picture that in the same way as these meat greens. You want to shorten them, then they're much easier to to chew and to swallow. 
you're not just sitting there chewing on a wad of meat forever. Exactly, exactly. Nobody likes that. Well, I don't know. Somebody probably does. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some recipes here, and we'll start uh, we'll start with um, a rib recipe. And so this one's from our very own website uh, by our very own uh, Mr. Brandon Dale, who is a senior staff writer over at Harvesting Nature. And uh, he's got a savory venison barbecue ribs recipe. And uh, just upon initial inspection, uh, this recipe meets the visual appealing quality that I like. It's nice and saucy. It looks roasted. You can see a little bit of bone. It looks super tasty. So I'll, I'll go with that. Um, it's actually voted for five stars by someone. So uh, Brandon does glaze this with barbecue sauce at the end. That's why uh, that's why we, we see such a, a, a yummy uh, appearance and he he mentions too in this article very much what we talked about about the uh the the venison ribs being very present with that tallow the waxy fat we mentioned earlier um and a lot of people just will cut this off and throw it in the grind pile i will say though that with this is that um backcountry hunts where you're not able to bring home the whole animal I will still go in and cut out rib meat. Uh, it's re- really easy to go in uh, to those sections between the ribs and cut that meat off and add it to your grind pile if you're not willing or able to haul you know, what is probably a ton of extra weight out of the field. So don't fret. Uh, just cut it off and save it. Enjoy it. It will go great in your grind. Um, or save it as like a... A braised type meat you know as we mentioned here you could keep those big long sort of rectangle sections and throw that in its own separate bag and and braise that down and use it uh for other things other than grind if you really wanted to um one two one thing too i wanted to mention earlier is a lot of folks will talk about the appearance of like that waxy tallow as they're cooking in there and people have asked me before i'm sure adam they've asked you as well of like how do i get rid of that and so while you'll want to braise on the gr- or uh, braise in like a, a container, a pot, um, finishing it on the grill will allow some of that uh, waxy fat, if it is present, to sort of like uh, render off and then uh, melt away from the ribs themselves. So that's something to sort of think about. Um, 
But in Brandon's recipe, he uses a full rack of venison ribs, uses a ton of spices, very akin to what you would see to a uh, a uh, barbecue spice blend, which I think is great. You could also substitute uh, one or two two of our blends. I would say Harvesting Nature would be really good for it. One, the big game blend is always a great choice, but our waterfowl blend because it's got like big, bold, like chop house flavors. I think that would go really, really well on a rack of ribs. Um, and then he creates his own barbecue sauce using Sweet Baby Ray's, but then also adds in uh, some whiskey or dark rum, uh, garlic cloves. He uses um, stone fruit preserves, uh, paprika, garlic powder, onion powder, and black pepper. And um, how does he do this? Let's see. So he bakes the ribs uh, on a baking sheet, wraps them in foil um, for two hours, then takes them off for two hours um, at 250, uh, 250 Fahrenheit, and then uh, creates the sauce, and then he does exactly that. He does a grilled, a grill them on the ribs for just probably like eight to ten minutes on each side while basting with the sauce. And, uh, yeah, looks pretty tasty. I agree. Uh, pretty, pretty good. So I'd recommend that the link will be down in the show notes as with all these. Um, do you want to talk about the, the next one there, Adam? Sure. Um, first I just want to get into that a little bit with the, it's like Brandon's recipe is a great way. If you're getting into ribs for the first time and you're trying out your venison ribs, that is one of the best ways to get rid of that fat that we're talking about because it's, you're rendering it twice basically you're rendering it while braising that fat slowly coming out into your braising liquid and then you're rendering the rest of it over the grill which is dripping into the grill and, and leaving the ribs which is great um but that braising liquid that you started out with uh one good method to get the fat out of it because now that braising liquid's full of fat it's also full of flavor and meat juices which you don't really want to lose uh you can put it into the fridge for a couple hours and the fat will all rise to the top and solidify. Uh, you can then take the liquid out of the fridge and just pull basically the whole fat cap right off the top. And then you, you have like a fatless, uh, braising liquid. So, uh, don't throw out that liquid, um, separate the fat and you can reduce it into a sauce or, or cook it rice with it or, or save it in the freezer, uh, for a soup or something. So that's pretty valuable stuff. So don't lose it. Um, talk about braising again. I'm going with a, a Hank Shaw recipe, actually, um, who knows what he's talking about. Uh, this is a recipe for Italian braised venison ribs. He's basically taking uh, a rack of venison ribs, and he's using um, something called saba or uh, purple grape juice and um, reducing it down. And using that as a flavoring element in the recipe, which is interesting. Uh, so he's taking a Dutch oven. He's going to fry some bacon into it, render that fat out, and then uh, brown the ribs in the bacon fat. He's then going to add like a sofrito of minced vegetables. It's usually like carrots, celery, onions, as well as some dried porcini mushrooms and tomato paste. Um, and it's going to brown those as well. Um, that's a great trick, by the way, for people who want to add more flavor to their meals. If, if the recipe calls for tomato paste, um, 
saute it a little bit before when you add it before you add liquid. Uh, that's going to add some more mired reaction and lots of browning, and it's going to add a lot more flavor. I I've become too a, a bigger fan of the tomato paste in the tube versus mm-hmm. the tomato paste in the can. Me too. I just have tubes all over the place. Uh, yeah, same. Yeah, I love it because often you're like, oh, a teaspoon of or a tablespoon of uh, mm-hmm. tomato paste, and you're opening a whole damn can, and then the, you like feel bad about throwing it out, so you put the, but you also don't want to transfer it into a Tupperware. Then you put the can in the fridge. I don't know if you ever did that. Then you just sit yep. for two days, and you're like, oh, this is stupid. I'm just gonna throw this out. If you have a tube, yep. it's uh, it's usually a better quality product, and you can just squeeze out. Uh, a tablespoon like toothpaste and then put it back in the fridge and it's good to go for another what forever basically so uh yeah stop it with the cans unless you need a lot of it just go to the <laughs> tubes it's well worth your time anyway so you're browning your your venison ribs and your sofrito and your um tomato paste and then you're gonna add the add some red wine in that grape juice that you've reduced as well as some balsamic vinegar and you're gonna just um braise that and you're probably gonna braise it for you know two to four hours depending on how uh large or old or what species the ribs are from uh some younger deer might only take two hours where like a moose or an elk might take four uh then you're gonna remove the gently remove the ribs from the pot and in this case, you're not going to actually uh, sear them or, or anything or um, or grill them after. It's going to just remain kind of like a hearty, think of like a, a braised short rib with gravy on mashed potatoes kind of thing or polenta. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going to basically um, reduce that cooking liquid down and drench the the ribs in that hot sauce over like some like I said mashed potatoes or polenta and it's gonna be like super rich hearty winter meal um that's gonna be kind of a nice change from all the kind of barbecue or grilling style recipes I usually find with ribs no that sounds yeah that sounds really tasty um I'll talk to you um I grew to be a fan in probably one of the first few ways. Well, there's like a very vintage recipe on Harvest Nature website of me just trying to barbecue ribs, which does not always turn out great. And you end up with like this charred mess. But if you want to go see that disaster, it's still up. We'll probably have to change that. But uh, I think, um, and you'll hear this one so commonly referenced, I think on like a lot of the social media groups is uh, Steve Ranella's uh, Wild game ribs and uh i think he follows a very similar path to what hank shaw does and what we've talked about here is like braising um but then he does uh finish them on the grill but instead of just braising he actually uh puts the ribs into a pressure cooker so instead of like braising for a long period of time you're using uh pressure you're using a pressure cooker to do this in about 20 minutes and uh which will cut time as well i've also seen this recipe done in a crock pot uh not in 20 minutes though but in like a four two three four hour period as well uh i think is another good way to do it if you don't want to do like a stovetop braise or an oven braise you could certainly use some of those kitchen gadgets uh like a pressure cooker um to do that and then once you're done you uh 
you're going to throw them on the grill and just combine all your, your stuff for your sauce. Um, I think uh, Steve uses a pretty basic uh, dry rub on the outside, and then what he's calling his mop sauce uh, is more of like a Carolina-based where he's using um, like a cider vinegar and yellow mustard on the outside um, to, to glaze that as it's cooking on the grill. So um, I think that's like pretty straightforward. Uh, I think if, if you're a cooker of ribs or if you you have not yet enjoyed ribs, these are probably three methods that can get you there. What's up? Uh, I just had one more one more thing to talk about before <laughs> we move on to brisket. Uh, can't help myself. But, and I meant mentioned it earlier, but we said that that whole bad fat, we talked about this fat. Uh, most people want to remove it, but I don't always want to remove it. I kind of like deer fat. And one of the tricks to... I don't find that it tastes that gamey. Um, it might depend on the deer, like where you got it, whether it's like a cedar swamp deer versus a corn fed deer or whatever. But for the most part, I don't like removing all the fat from my deer. Um, one trick in order to eat the fat and enjoy it is to eat it very hot. So if you're planning on leaving a little more fat in your ribs, if you eat it really hot, it's going to be actually quite nice. It's not going to coat your mouth the same way. It's going to be quite flavorful. It's going to be more tender and unctuous, more like a pork or beef rib or more like actually a lamb rib if you've ever had that. Um, but the minute it starts to cool, then it starts coating your mouth with like chalkiness. So if you want to enjoy a fattier, more unctuous rib, um, eat it really hot. Eat it right off the grill, like burning your fingers hot and it's super enjoyable and I really like it that way. But like I said, if you leave it on a plate, taking pictures for five minutes and bring it outside and have everyone finish their beers before they're eating it, like, it's no good. Like, you got to eat them hot. So, yeah, I just want to mention that it's actually a pretty enjoyable way to enjoy or to have uh, deer fat. Nice. Shots. Hot yeah. shots of deer fat. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's move on. Uh, do you want to do the first brisket recipe, the brisket bacon? Sure, yeah. So this one is from Alan Burgo, who's known as the Forager Chef. And he uses that, once again, that kind of front uh, piece of brisket, the, the, the point. point off of the chest or the breast. And he makes a type of bacon out of it, um, which is pretty interesting. You can use the kind of uh, flat rib meat for it as well. Um but he basically creates a um, rubs like a, a cure. Uh, so you're rubbing like spices and and uh, sugar and salt and pink curing salt or preg powder. Um, so it'd be your equilibrium cure. Yes. Uh, and then he's letting that um, chill out for a couple days, um, probably in a vacuum sealed bag. Uh, and then he, he just basically, uh, smokes it, uh, smokes it for about three or four hours or until tender at 225 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, he recommends using a steam pan underneath, which will create a lot more moisture inside the, um, vessel or the container that you're smoking it in. Um, and he also recommends instead of cooking it like regular pork bacon where you're um, frying slices, 
he likes to dice it and cook it more like pancetta. And that's a pretty cool way to have um, like another cured deer product. Uh, and one of the pretty unique uses for this cut that most people just grind up. So I thought that was pretty cool. I uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this. This is another. Um, it's a Jesse Griffiths recipe. Uh, who is many of you know, I'm a big fan. Um, but it's on the Meat Eater website because if you watched uh, episode three of season ten of Meat Eater, um, Jesse cooks it there, and it's a Texas style venison belly rouladen. And so rouladen is a German preparation of uh, some different cuts where you're using a thinner cut of meat and you're rolling it with a filling and you're basically braising it until it's like fall apart. But you then like cross cut it and you're getting these cool little discs of like meat and yummy goodness inside. So uh, for those that may not know, there's a very heavy presence of German culture in Texas and uh, I'm guessing that this is likely a a uh, fusion of sorts uh, of that. So um, I, I like too that uh, he opens it up with the chef notes of saying, uh, you know, that this portion of the boneless rib meat is usually in the grind pile or just discarded. Um, but uh, he likes to cook it for a long time. And then uh, even add in um, uh, bacon, sharp mustard, pickles, onion, all those things. Like that's those are really traditionally what you see in a traditional rouladen. Uh, is is you've got like bacon or prosciutto, you've got a like kind of German style mustard, you've got pickles, and then uh, slices of onion. So those really tasty on its own. Um, I do like Jesse's version of this where he. Uh, he takes basically the big side of, of, of a belly, which is, he's saying, about 14 to 20 inches. And then um, he's adding bacon, coarse grain mustard, pickled jalapenos. Uh, he's using olive oil or lard. You use carrots, flour, a stock. And that's going to kind of create your base for the sauce that you're going to braise it in. And he... Um, he lays everything out flat and makes it if you think about rolling sushi is the easiest way i can and picture this of like you lay it all on one side and then you roll it up tight and you tie it with butcher's twine um and then you're gonna put it in a dutch oven uh after you've made your sauce with the carrots and and the, your other aromatics and your your flour for your roux and all that and then uh you're going to bring all that liquid to a simmer and you're going to put the the rouladen in there and you're going to let it cook for about five to seven hours. Um, and then uh, and then you spoon the sauce over the top once it's done and, and slice thickly against the grain. And uh, you will have a tasty rouladen, uh, which is phenomenal. And I think that's a great thing to do with the flat portion of the brisket off of an animal because you've got this big section to sort of roll up and then coat uh cut into uh roll little like 
rolled sections, which also too is very visually appealing. It's a cool process for people to see if you're doing like a party or a gathering, and it's a great way to use cuts that people are, are likely not going to cook independently. So, um, I think overall looking at these sort of five recipes, uh, are a great foundation for ways in which to cook these two cuts that aren't commonly cooked. Um, I would say if you're going to dive into this, use these methods, use the preparation methods, maybe take some variations. They can definitely, both these cuts can handle a lot of spice. They can handle a lot of bold flavors. They can handle a lot of really cool sauces. So you can play around uh, with both and see, and I think you're really going to be excited at what you uh, what you can find and what you can come out with. Uh, definitely encourage everybody to try uh, to use as much as they can. I'll kick it over to you, Adam, for uh, last thoughts or alibis. Sure. Um, I was thinking there's no need to approach your deer um, doing the same thing on both sides. So say you have two sides where you have a loin and a rib, and uh, it's a good opportunity to, to try different things with it. So maybe on the one side, just... Uh, remove your back strap or your loin uh, boneless and then on the other side do a bone in one with a like a rib chopper you're actually taking part of that rib and leaving it attached to the to the spine bone and having like a kind of a tomahawk chop or whatever um, you know on one side maybe grind the the rib meat on the other side do a roll um or keep a couple racks like there's no need to do your deer all in the same way you have different sides so it's a good opportunity to play around and try new things and uh it means that even if you try something new and you didn't like it you don't have to do your entire deer like that you know do one mm-hmm. side the way you know and you've always done it and try something new on the other side uh it's a great opportunity to do so so i think that next time you're doing your deer try to approach it like that and and see what you can come up with it's, it's one thing we've started teaching in sort of our, our pig camps is that before people go out and start butchering their own pigs, uh, we ask them to go through the cookbooks that we use, which we use the hog book uh, for the pig camp. And we have them go through there and like pick out some recipes they want to cook with some specialty cuts because then we'll teach them how to get those specialty cuts off the animal, like the rib chops, or, you know, we'll teach them how to break down the rib sections or do, uh, you know, different things. And we ask them to create a list, uh, and take the list with them out to the butchering area. And I think I would encourage a lot of people to do that. Like before you start processing your deer, like go through and think about what cool things you want to try with it. Or if you want to do the same old, same old, that's fine too. But like get a plan in your head before you go out and you start butchering because it's going to make it easier uh, at the end of the day to, to go through these cuts and really understand what you can do with them if you want to be creative. So uh, that's my last thought as well. So I'll uh, uh, I thank everybody for listening. Look forward to talking with you again here pretty soon. Uh, we're going to get our guests back on the show. We're going to get some more fun topics as well, some crew chats. And then, uh, as always, if you've got topics or things you want to hear about, you know, message us on social media. Insta- I'm on Instagram. Harvesty Nature's on Instagram. Adam's on Instagram. Uh, we're always available. <coughs> 
We'll have our uh, show notes will be available online with this episode, so you can get links to all these recipes. You can get links to our website as well. And then uh, make sure that whatever podcast platform you're listening to, punch that five-star button, uh, leave us a review, tell us we're doing right, or, you know, tell us we're doing wrong. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.